This is an ABC podcast. Five G mobile technology is supposed to be faster, more responsive, and make the world a more connected place. It also gives five G companies a whole lot of power, says Svi Meron. Yeah, there may not be questions specifically about TikTok, but there may be questions about Chinese tech. And if you look at the opening statements that have already been released from these tech CEOs, definitely play into these anti-China concerns. The U.S. is pressuring allies in the West to ban Huawei. Chinese tech giant provides world-leading technology for the next generation of mobile... China's development is often framed through the prism of ambition and rivalry, either with the US specifically or the West more broadly. The catch-up and surpass trope now dominates discussion about Chinese technology. But are China's tech giants really just slaves to political ideology? And what sort of cultural impact are they likely to have on future global technology development? That's our topic today. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. First, let's dispense with the questionable and probably racist view that China is a country only capable of stealing and copying technology, that it's not a true technology innovator, a claim, by the way, which was once also made of Japan and South Korea. Here's Elsa Kania, an adjunct senior fellow with the Technology and National Security Program at the Centre for a New American Security. So I think certainly we have seen a gradual realisation within the United States that China truly can be a powerhouse within innovation and that there's not just the threat of IP theft or tech transfer or copycatting, which has long been a concern and element of the conversation, but rather a reality in which Chinese companies and Chinese research are starting to become increasingly competitive in ways that do present a competitive challenge on many fronts, whether we're talking about strengths in AI industry and applications or some of the latest developments and the marathon head in quantum computing. So I think that it is important for anyone fascinated with the future of technology or, or concerned variously about it to be looking to what's happening on the ground in China and trying to make sense of that rapidly evolving ecosystem because there are lessons to be learned in some cases. And we've, for instance, seen some American social media platforms start to emulate Chinese social media and some of the interactive and integrated character of it. And while there are ways in which China still falls short in what Chinese policymakers are concerned about, in particular, key and core technologies such as semiconductors that are still bottlenecks to China's success in innovation. There also are possibilities for strength that come out of that view of the world today. Now, we'll come back to semiconductors a little later in the show, because even though they might sound yawn-inducing, they're important in understanding where Chinese technology development might head in the future. As Elsa Kania said, some US social media platforms have now begun changing their functions to mimic successful Chinese counterparts. WhatsApp, for instance, has followed China's WeChat by introducing a payment feature, essentially turning their platform into a payment infrastructure. So it's no longer a simple messaging service. Dr Elaine Zhao from the University of New South Wales. Apart from WhatsApp, I think another example would be Instagram. Instagram has launched Reels globally, and this is a direct competitor against TikTok, which has become popular in different parts of the world. Like TikTok, Reels allows users to create and share 
short form videos set to music, and there's a range of filters and effects to choose from. It has a prominent landing spot on the Explore page on the Instagram, and users can find it on top of the screen and vertically scroll through the videos uh, recommended to them. So just like the For You page on TikTok, and with Reels, I think Instagram obviously hopes to bring in more users, increase the usage time, and perhaps more importantly, to strengthen its position in the video entertainment market. So Chinese technology companies, at least in the social media space, are starting to also lead the way in terms of innovation. But what about cultural influence? The sort of global cultural influence that Japanese companies have achieved over recent decades through animation and gaming. Will Western social media platforms in future look and feel more Chinese? Elaine Zhao has her doubts. I think one of the reasons that Chinese industry players have been facing obstacles here is obviously culture is a big one. So different cultural take, the different you know aesthetics, and also the, the complexity is always when it comes to China stories will have an impact on readers or users or audiences' reception. How to make a story relevant to them and how to make the content acceptable. I mean, this is an ongoing challenge for the Chinese industries. Many people might look at the size of the Chinese market and wonder why they would be interested, why Chinese technology companies would be interested in becoming more international when they have such an enormous market to deal with themselves. What's your answer to that? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Chinese industry players are ambitious. They want to take on the overseas market. If we look at the digital platforms field, I think one reason is the commercial imperative. So when scale is important, it becomes a natural choice to expand the market. And if you look at the, you know, the digital technologies, the platforms model, you know, what comes up to these entrepreneurs' mind first, perhaps is not a profitability, it's scale. Scale first, and then we talk about profitability. So this is a commercial imperative for business in that context. So when domestic market is close to saturation, as you said, they turn to the next billion users. And in addition to that, I think in China's case, it helps to establish an image of global power, and this is to a large extent driven by techno-nationalism, where technological innovation and its capacities are directly linked to national image, particularly in China's case to the discourse of national rejuvenation. So the techno-nationalism does not come only from top-down, it can also come from bottom-up. So you will have Chinese people really wishing for their Chinese industries and entrepreneurs to be successful, not only in China, but also outside China. And apart from that, as I've said, the uh, commercial imperatives for these technological companies to scale it up, sometimes even before thinking about their profitability, is another major reason that they want to expand beyond the border. So China's technology focus is infused with national pride, ambition, politics and commercial imperatives. 
rather like the US technology focus, to be honest. You know, a lot of what you think you should be concerned about will depend on your point of view. I mean, we're in a global society now in which almost every player, whether they're national governments or whether they're platforms like TikTok or, you know, Facebook, they're all collecting enormous amounts of our data. Associate Professor David Murakami-Wood from the Department of Sociology at Queen's University in Canada. You know, one of the allegations that was made against TikTok was it, was it was collecting this incredible amount of data and it was all being sent back to China. I mean, this is normal, right? This is what all platform corporations do. That's their lifeblood, is basically taking our data, packaging it up and using it for various purposes. And I think you've got to wonder really whether is it worse that, you know, the corporation that's connected to the Chinese Communist Party is collecting our data or is it worse that a corporation you know, connected to Mark Zuckerberg is doing this? None of this is done with our consent. All of it you know, has consequences that we're unsure of and unclear of for the future. And in some ways, some of the most consequential outcomes of this are going to be not for any particular government, but maybe for the whole idea of national governments altogether. I mean, from what I see, all of these corporations are building up an immense amount of power through their data dominance. And this could, in fact, turn into not so much techno-nationalism, eventually, as, as maybe a new kind of government for want of a better term, based on around these corporations. And they, in some ways, already have more power than some governments. And we can see in some ways it's not so much that corporations are dancing to the tune of particular national governments, but maybe national governments are actually dancing to the tune of particular corporations. Because there's money to be made in techno-nationalism as well, isn't there, for these corporations? If they seem to be, you know, America first or, you know, Chinese people can be proud of their uh, technology companies, that can be good for business, can't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, China in itself is an enormous market. So most of the Chinese technology companies are ones that we haven't even heard of outside of China. Within China, there are, you know, there's, you know, two billion odd people. And this is this is a market like none other in the world, right? So there's an enormous sense of, I think, national pride in a really high tech sort of economy. And so, yeah, sure, people are proud of this there. Sure, people are proud of Chinese companies. And, you know, that kind of nationalism, in a sense, is no you know, people in America shouldn't find it strange at all. It's very similar to the kind of, you know, American exceptionalism and pride in America that people feel in that country, any other country. And technology has always been a focal point of national prestige, hasn't it? When you look at the United States, I mean, they're very proud of the fact that they develop many of the platforms that we use today. They're very proud of their car industry in the 1950s and 60s. Technology's often used, isn't it, as a, a symbol of national advancement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the cars. I mean, there's no better example than Henry Ford and his, you know, very, very strongly nationalistic form of technological promotion around around the Model T and all the cars that came after. But yeah, I mean, almost, you know, one of the things here is is that almost all of the infrastructure that has created the Internet has been based on American technology. And so in some ways, what you're seeing with China is the first perhaps genuine competitor so it's not surprising that America and American corporations are fighting back pretty hard. We've been talking about China and the United States, but we're also seeing techno-nationalism in other countries, aren't we? And particularly, I'm thinking of India and its response to well, China over the last year or so and its technology. Well, very much. And if, if nothing else, we are living in a time right now of a kind of resurgent nationalism in, in many different countries. In India, of course, you know, they've gone down this route of a very virulent sort of Hindu nationalism. 
part of that has been to, you know, yes, use very much use their own technology companies and technology platforms as part of that strategy, uh, right through from their massive national identification system through to various new social media platforms. And of course, this is built on the back of, ironically enough, outsourcing of, you know, various technology functions from America, from various countries in Europe, you know, which then gave India the power and, and the capital to build on this and to create its own computer industry. And of course, India is in direct competition to China in various spheres, especially, you know, lots of border conflicts. And so technology is another area in which you can see these conflicts being played out. And India, you know, banned a whole series of apps last year when, you know, Trump just talked about it. India actually went ahead and banned TikTok and a whole lot of other apps, most of which were Chinese. So they're in some ways, you know, much further down this path of a kind of techno-nationalism even than the US is. And yet our concern in the West tends to focus on China and to a lesser extent the United States, doesn't it? We, we don't hear anything about India and, and the way uh, it's using technology to promote its nationalism. Well, the only way in which, you know, certainly in, in the area I work in, in surveillance, the only way you, place you do hear this, this kind of concern about India is around its national identification system. It's got the, one of the biggest programs for essentially an electronic identification system in the world called ADAR. It's a program which many people a few years ago said could never happen. There's no way that India would be able to get all its, you know, over a billion people nationally identified and in these databases. And yet it, it has happened. The system is, is going, you know, has gone ahead and it's involved in all sorts of areas. So, again, I think a lot of this has to do with our, maybe our prejudices about particular countries and what they're capable of. Where I come up from in Britain there's kind of an assumption that India, you know, is somehow can't do these things. And yet India has gone ahead and bypassed most European countries, you know, just passed them in the fast lane, basically, when it comes to a lot of these technology industries. If we don't pay attention to countries like India in the future, we're going to be very surprised. China recently announced what's called the Global Initiative on Data Security. Could I get you to explain to us what mm-hmm. that is and what the Chinese government is hoping to achieve with that initiative? You know, if I could tell you exactly what it was, I'd be, you know, a lot wiser than many other people in the world. It's, 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 a, it's an initiative which seems to be trying to preempt any move by, for example, the EU to kind of globalize its own general data protection regulation, which is at the moment the kind of de facto standard, emerging standard for the world and how, you know, a, a good kind of privacy oriented regulation could be. So essentially, as with many other areas, China's trying to preempt those kind of things and set global standards around, you know, what it regards as being its priority. So it's, you know, in some ways, some of the aspects of it look pretty good. It's updated its own privacy laws recently. And in theory, at least, they don't look that bad. In fact, they look better than some of the laws, for example, of the United States with regard to privacy. But of course, we know in practice that this has very little meaning within China in the context of the particular government they have. So, you know, they can make these gestures. They've been very good at this recently, making very large gestures around human rights, around privacy and a number of other things. But that's what they are. They're basically trying to control the terrain at a global level. And they sort of squeeze out some of the other players like the EU from being able to offer their own standards as being a kind of de facto or possible future global standard. Is it too early to say how successful they'll be in that? I think it is. I mean, I think at the very minimum, because of the kind of weakness of some of the things that are being offered here in these, and even if China was successful in, in creating a kind of global standard in some way, it wouldn't go as far as some of the other ones. So it really wouldn't, it wouldn't actually push these standards any, any further than they are already. It kind of means it's a bargaining chip for them in international negotiations. That's all they can say. We've done this. Look, we pushed this forward. 
So I don't think it's going to be you know, anything other than that kind of bargaining chip and maybe potentially, again, another opportunity for their own corporations to come in and, and sort of meet those standards and therefore be seen as a kind of you know, significant global players. In the words of a saying that's often raised in Chinese industry, first-class companies make standards, second-class companies provide services, and third-class companies just make products. So the notion that if to be a leading and successful company on the world stage, you have to have a role in shaping standards and have more of a voice and uh, greater leadership within some of the international institutions involved in standardization. So certainly... These efforts and ambitions shouldn't come as a surprise, and indeed there's been a great deal of consistency uh, going back to uh, the 2000s and onward in efforts to uh, promote standardization work within China and on the world stage. And some of the early efforts by Beijing on this front didn't gain a lot of traction. Uh, In 3G, for instance, China's attempts to promote an indigenous standard fell short, but by the time we've made it to 5G now, uh, Huawei is, uh, while certainly not the dominant player, is a major player and a, in some respects, productive contributor to how 5G is taking shape, but also sometimes has been quite forceful in these efforts in ways that have provoked concerns about overreach or about undue politicization of a process that is intended to be inherently uh, collaborative and technocratic. Has that sort of politicization, though, has that occurred in the past with the United States and with Europe, which to date have played the most significant part, I understand, in in setting technical standards? There is as much continuity as change on some fronts. This isn't necessarily a new dynamic, but it's certainly come into focus, including as there are more concerns and some amount of, of expectation among initiatives like China Standards 2035, which is... I believe still yet to be formally launched, but has provoked concern as indicative of the extent of Beijing's ambitions here, even if these efforts have yet to fully come to fruition to date. Just picking up on that point, the Chinese government being the type of government it is, it sets these long duration plans in place. One of them being, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative. My understanding is that some of the standardisation is being tied into these bigger initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative. How should we read that? So absolutely, there's been an emphasis on the going out of Chinese technology companies and their contribution to initiatives like the Digital Silk Road as an element of the One Belt, One Road agenda and trying to link these efforts and leverage the strengths of Chinese companies on these fronts to support national objectives as well. I think these efforts remain relatively nascent on some fronts, as do these technologies. Chinese efforts to uh, promote standards development in AI and to shape the rules and and norms in terms of global governance as well are well underway. But I think still we're seeing a lot of these debates continue to play out as the frontier of these technologies continues to progress as well. I've seen some people speculating that the worst possible scenario, given China's growing influence in this area, given also that there is this increased rivalry and and nationalism between China and the United States, that we could end up at some stage in the future almost with two rival internet infrastructures, with an American-dominated one and a Chinese-dominated one. Do you see any possibility of that occurring? I think there's definitely a real risk of that. And as we see increased geopolitical bifurcation, that uh, growing decoupling, as some would call it, or division and fragmentation of technology ecosystems could follow. And I think that would be a a worst case scenario 
for consumers, for the healthy development of these technologies across the board. And hopefully there are ways to reinforce norms and processes in standard setting and try to ensure that everyone is coming to the table in a manner that is appropriately constructive at the end of the day. And though in some respects, given barriers to access and the differences between the Chinese internet and the rest of the world, we already do see very different different environments in practice. So even without fragmentation of standards, we're already seeing world of uh, very different models of internet governance. And given the uh, possibilities of emerging technologies and given the uh, dangers we're already seeing of, of the abuse of technologies, how to try to fully leverage the benefits and positive externalities of this moment of technological transformation while mitigating the risks and possible consequences. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Our focus today is on China's growing role in shaping the direction of global technology. As we've heard, manufacturing developments in China don't always fit the self-interested narratives from both Washington and Beijing. Certainly the Chinese government is fond of talking up its own technological goals and targets. But government rhetoric is not the same as achievable strategy, says Paul Triolo the practice head for technology at Eurasia Group. And there are limits, he says, to how far aspirational government policy and propaganda can effectively spur private development. A good example here would be the National AI Development Plan. So this is a plan that came out in the summer of 2017. And the language in it is is very, very frightening in some sense. It says, you know, China plans to dominate or be a dominant player in artificial intelligence by 2030, for example. But again, if you look at that plan, it's so aspirational in the sense that the government is saying we want to be a player in this. But all of the areas they talk about, semiconductors, you know, software development, in all those areas, th- those are all very competitive and market-driven sectors. I was actually in Beijing in early 2018 after that report it came out, and I talked to some of the drafters of that plan, and they admitted that it was sort of OBE, overtaken by events. You know, virtually right after it was issued. And this was also a similar dynamic happening with the Made in China 2025 plan. But again, very aspirational. They plugged in numbers like 50, 60 percent domestic production in some of these key areas in China by 2025. They're nowhere near that. So these kinds of plans end up being these snapshots of sort of showing that the Chinese government is um, interested in, again, reducing foreign dependence in these key areas and boosting the capabilities of domestic companies. But the reality is, you know, the most successful companies in China, for example, like Huawei, you could argue, it may have received government support, but it wasn't necessarily the beneficiary of some of these plans. It was competing in a very competitive global market. And so, you know, it hired really capable engineers. You know, none of that was directed from Beijing to say, you know, you should do all this. I mean, it was this was a corporate decision by Huawei. They're, they're not doing what they're doing sort of because there's a plan that says, you know, the government wants China to be a player in AI by 2030, right? I mean, they're, they're just, they're pursuing competition in their sector and doing what they need to do to succeed. But, says Paul Triolo, there are still areas where Chinese technology firms are heavily reliant on key parts manufactured in other countries. 
The glaring one here is semiconductors. And not, not just semiconductors, because that word, I think, is tricky. It really means semiconductors and semiconductor manufacturing equipment, because both of those are critical. So if you look at China, and again, this, the amount of money that's been thrown at this industry by the government, particularly since 2014, when they established this $40 billion national IC investment fund, is stunning in some sense. I mean, almost you know, no other country could stand to lose tens of billions of dollars in investment in a key sector like semiconductors. So there was a big plant that just closed down or is going to probably close down in Wuhan. You know, there was bad management and there was corruption and there was lack of a real clear technology and goal and, and roadmap. But if you look at the sector as a whole, there are success stories in key parts of it. So, you know, there, there are these individual companies in China that are doing very well in a very niche area. But if you look across the sector, almost all Chinese high-tech companies are dependent on U.S. semiconductors or Japanese semiconductors or semiconductors produced in Taiwan because there just isn't domestic capacity. But I think the thing that the people miss is, yes, they, they want to be I, – I, the self-sufficiency thing I think is a little overplayed. They want to be less reliant on foreign companies, but there's no way China can recreate all of the global value chains in all of these different segments of the semiconductor industry in China. Now, you could argue it's a big enough market and et cetera, et cetera, but th th there's this sort of global division of labor in all these sectors of the semiconductor industry, and China is sort of trying to find, you know, what its niche is in there. It comes down to this, and I'm a man of my word. America is back. I speak today as president of the United States at the very start of my administration, and I'm sending a clear message to the world. America is back. And what that means, what the new Biden administration means for Chinese technology companies, is still unclear. I think they're going to be working with allies, for example, uh, to come up with a you know broader strategy, some kind of a transatlantic alliance, which could include multilateral export controls, <laughs> on some technologies going to China. But I think they're going to try to do that in a more narrow and, and focused way. You know, the, we, we still haven't really seen how that's going to happen. But certainly already the impact, for example, of the Trump era controls, and again, specifically on semiconductors and Huawei, have already had a big impact in China, for example, on deploying 5G, next generation mobile uh, networks, because Huawei was the producer of about 40% or more of the equipment that Chinese carriers use, depending on, on what you're talking about in terms of the infrastructure. And so this is a huge deal. So China probably, is, if nothing changes on Huawei, in other words, if the Biden administration continues those controls on, on Huawei supply chains, Huawei is not going to be able to compete in this area. And so that means China's going to have to slow down its 5G rollout. And again, that was one of those areas where people were saying, oh, China's getting ahead of the U.S. on 5G. But certainly on the semiconductor space, if the U.S. government continues some of the controls that they impose late, for example, the entity list action against SMIC, which is China's biggest and most capable domestic semiconductor manufacturer, and imposes new controls on semiconductor equipment, as a, a recent report that came out from the National Security Committee for AI, Blue Ribbon Commission led by Eric Schmidt, a former CEO of Google, they recommended the U.S. post controls on choke point technologies around semiconductors. So if the U.S. sort of ratchets up its controls around semiconductors, China is going to be, you know, in a, in a sort of world of hurt here because the U.S. companies are so dominant, for example, in all phases of semiconductor manufacturing. So China is going to have to look for other ways around this, but it's going to be tough. Their, their domestic companies could be stuck at around, say, 14 or 10 nanometers, while the cutting edge in manufacturing moves smaller and smaller below 
10 nanometers. The interesting thing is that Chinese companies, other than Huawei, most of them still have access to Taiwan, to TSMC. And so Taiwan is going to become an even bigger player in all this. Taiwan is sort of in this key position, triangular position between the U.S. and China, part of the the blue supply chain, if you will, of U.S. companies, tech companies, all designing and then manufacturing the chips in Taiwan. And then Chinese companies, upcoming companies that are very good at design, also using Taiwan to manufacture their semiconductors. So Taiwan is sort of China's, in some sense, secret card there or, or ace in the hole, as long as the U.S. doesn't tighten up as it did on Huawei, on the use of U.S. technology at TSMC, for example, to manufacture semiconductors. So the semiconductor piece of the equation, I think, is really the, the, the key here because it, you know, semiconductors underlie all of these other industries, right? And 5G and AI and cloud computing, these are all enabled by access to the latest semiconductor technology. So that's going to be the area that could really hurt China if the U.S. really sort of chokes further, <laughs> clamps down further on that choke point. And that's something that, you know, it's not clear at this moment how the Biden administration is going to go on this, but it's probably going to be tougher rather than easier uh, for China. Paul Triolo from the Eurasia Group. We also heard today from Elsa Kania, Elaine Zhao and David Murakami-Wood. Thanks to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time on Future Tense, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.